let's look back and take a look at how we must get to this bold proclamation. And we're going to review prayer very quickly. And we're going to take a look at what boldness is. First, prayer. Notice again here in verse 18, praying. This is the participle that tells us how we put on the armor. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Period to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Number one, prayer is tangible ministry. Listen, I had this conversation with somebody this week. We were talking about their involvement in working in our people group. And through their denomination and through their local context, it just looks like they cannot get their flesh in the game. They're not going to be able to put their body in the game, can't put their church in the game. And so we had this discussion that, you know, Jesus taught us, first and foremost, ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. And the default often is, for practical atheists like all of us are, is that it's not useful if my hands aren't on it. And so therefore, if my, my function isn't an exercise of my tangible gifts, I'm unproductive. And what we had a discussion about this week was Jesus taught us to start by asking Him to send laborers. So maybe His tangible work was to ask Jesus to speak to His denomination and to His fellowship about them getting their skin in the game. And as Jesus gave laborers, then the organization would come. And what we discover is the reality that prayer is tangible ministry. The problem is as practical atheists, we don't think that it is. Right? Because if we really believe prayer were tangible ministry, we would all be prayers, and we would see a powerful advancing of the kingdom, because prayer is God's means of getting ministry done initially. The reason there isn't a movement in Roman Floyd County is not because God isn't present. We dealt with that. It's not because we're lazy. It's we're practical atheists, and we think He needs my hands. When in fact it might start with prayer and fasting. It might, and, and, and hear, hear me here, this is rabbit trail. When I say fasting, I don't mean Western American fasting. I'm not eating sugar for a month. Come on, man. I'm not watching TV for two months. Come on, man. Biblical fasting, I'm not eating food. Food will not cross my lips. Until I hear from the Lord. That, that's Bible fasting. Let's just be clear. Because when Jesus spoke, He said when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast, meaning He assumed it would be a discipline of ours. Isaiah 58, fasting, doing without food, right? Fasting, right? Fasting is the abstinence of the natural necessity in order to have the supernatural, Right? So I do without the natural in order to experience and taste the supernatural, sustaining and powerful working of God. I know that's weird for us, but that's just Bible, right? When you fast. And so maybe powerful movements of ministry begin through prayer, through seeking the Lord, through prayer, through fasting. Lord, we can't, you can. And prayer is ultimately the confession, we can't. That's why, that's why we pray for lost people, Right? I can't make them believe, Jesus, only you can. And that's real uncomfortable for people who aren't Calvinists because 
Why pray for lost people? I'm asking God to do in them something they won't do for themselves. Because they can't. <laughs> so if you don't believe that, you know, the good sovereign election of God, quit praying for people. Because you're asking God to do in them what they want or can't do for themselves. Right? So, Lord, we can't make a movement of foster care and adoption happen in Roman Floyd County. But you own the hearts of men. So would you put it in the hearts of men to make them do what your Bible says we ought to be doing? And we start there. Right? And we move as he moves. Eugene Peterson says, prayer is the stubborn refusal to act before God does. And so often we just act before God does, assuming God should get up. We're moving, Jesus. Come join us. And Jesus is going, dude, come on, man. I think Jesus is divine. Come on, man, there. Come on, man. So prayer is the stubborn refusal to act before God does. And so for Paul... He, he comes, he says, prayer is how we put on the armor. And then he's going to ask for specific prayer for boldness. And so let's not look past prayer. You say, why are we revisiting prayer? You said this already. Because I still don't think, as Western Christians, and I'm not speaking to Three Rivers Community Church specifically, I think as a Western movement or a Western manifestation of the community of the kingdom, we don't pray. Because our worldview lends us to acting before we pray. We're practical atheists. God needs me. God has to have me. If my hands aren't on it, Jesus' mission is going to suffer. Same conversation with this individual. Do you understand we're all expendable? I'm expendable. Jesus does not need me. I possess nothing Jesus can't gift another person with. And raise them up at the snap of a finger to do. You're a dangerous place when you think you're not expendable. Right? It's a humility issue. So... The reality is, prayer is this confession that, Jesus, I can't, you can. Please do this because you said you're going to do this and your word is clear. And we want to join you. So would you, please, Jesus, raise up workers, raise up laborers for the local and global advancement of your kingdom. So let's don't look past prayer and just assume we got it. I don't think we got it. So prayer, guys, is tangible ministry. It really, really is. So, how does Paul say this here in these in verse 18? He says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And we broke this down already, so let's revisit it very quickly. Pray always. Pray always. Praying at all times. This obviously doesn't mean always saying prayers. Right? Because Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, 7, we're not heard because of our much speaking. Listen, if you don't know how to pray, just go read Jesus. You don't need like a six-week course on it. Just go read Jesus and obey what he said. We're not heard because we say it a lot. So always praying doesn't mean speaking much. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Always be in communion with the Lord. In other words, according to Warren Wearsby, keep the receiver off the hook. Never will we have to say when we pray, Lord, we come into your presence. You remember this from a few weeks ago? Please stop saying that when you pray. It is a flat-out denial of the presence of the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit in His ministry. We don't come into His presence. He is present. We're not coming anywhere. He is here. And so how about stop 
Let's just try this for a minute. Let's just get, let's just get real practical. Why don't you stop for a moment and acknowledge in your soul, Jesus, you are here. You're here. So praying always isn't saying much. It's a recognition of the fact that you're here. And whenever I speak to you, you hear because you're here, right? Here versus here, H-E-R-E versus H-E-A-R. That's about right, yes. I don't have spell check, right? And so recognizing He's present. A Christian must pray always because he's always subject to temptation and attacks of Satan. And a surprise attack has defeated more than one believer who forgot to pray without ceasing. This is the idea of living in the awareness of and practicing the Spirit's presence and His pleasure or grief over my actions. In this moment, Holy Spirit, you're present. And am I pleasing you or am I grieving you? Worshiping privately. Practicing repentance. Communicating like we truly have a good and loving Father who never, ever leaves us. Jesus said, y'all, listen, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we don't have to come into His presence. We simply say, Lord Jesus. Right? When I'm talking to my wife, I don't have to say, I'm coming into your presence now. She's here. So, Jennifer, right? So, we, we forget that Holy Spirit is a person. He, by the way, please don't refer to the Holy Spirit as it. He is not a thing. He is He. He is the third person of the Trinity. He's a person. We don't relate to things. We relate to people. So, Lord, thank you for being present. You hear and you know the gearing of my heart. And so I want to speak and confess to you and tell you what you already know. And I need to hear from you. He's good. Jesus said, we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more our Father in heaven? So when we ask for a fish, will he give us a snake? It's a rhetorical question. We ask for bread, is he going to give us a rock? No, no, not at all. So we pray like we have a good father who loves to lavish on us the kingdom. So we pray at all times, constantly aware of the presence of the Lord, calling on him, Lord, Lord, raise up laborers, raise up laborers. Jesus, in the car, Jesus, raise up laborers. If the, mo- if the ministry doesn't seem to be moving, Jesus, raise up laborers. Jesus, send them. Give me eyes that see and ears that hear. But Jesus sent them. Right? Then he says, praying at all times with all prayer and supplication. So prayer with all prayer. That's an interesting phrase. Praying at all times with all prayer and all supplication. In other words, all prayer with all prayer. There's more than one kind of praying. Supplication, intercession, thanksgiving. Often our prayer needs to be giving thanks. It's not just asking for, it's giving over thanksgiving. The Psalms tell us thanksgiving is worship. It is submission to the Lord. Give, it, give thanks in all things, right? Even when bad things come, right? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this tool of training to grow me into righteousness. You know what Peter says? He who has suffered in the flesh is through a sin. Thank you for this, Lord, because I really desire your kingdom and not sin right now. Thank you. The believer who prays only to ask for things is missing out on the blessings that come with intercession and giving thanks. Praying for other people. 
seeking the Lord on behalf of our city, seeking the Lord on behalf of the lost, seeking the Lord on behalf of each other. Pray in the Spirit, Paul says. The Bible formula is that we pray to the Father through the Son and in the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches in Romans 8, 26-27 that only in the Spirit's power can we pray in the will of God. Otherwise, our praying could be selfish and out of the will of God. And so we're taught to pray in the Spirit. And this is what's beautiful about that Romans 8 passage. When we don't know how to do that, you read it recently, the Spirit prays on our behalf in accordance with the will of the Father. So when you don't know, He does. And for you, He's making intercession. Listen, this is the confidence we have as followers of Jesus Christ is we don't have to wonder about whether or not the Father will accomplish His good purpose in my life because when I don't know what it is, Holy Spirit does and He's making it known to the Father on my behalf. So relax. Be patient. This is why the Psalms repeat this phrase that most of us hate, particularly as practical atheists, right? We don't like these phrases. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. We get in trouble when we advance Without Him moving. Wait on the Lord. So we wait, we trust, we listen. We pray in step with the Spirit's will. We pray in the power of the Spirit's gifting and His discernment and joy. I'm going to give you some things to talk to do at the end to help you with this. Pray in the assurance that the Spirit may give you things to ask for that you didn't want to ask for. He will speak to you about those things because He knows the will of the Father and He dwells in you. He will let you know what you need to be praying for. And sometimes it's counter to what you want. And then you got to buck up and pray what He wants because it crucifies your pride. This is, I think, one of the reasons we don't like praying is because sometimes in prayer we get quiet, we hear, or we hear contradicts what we want to be and do, which in accordance with the kingdom of God, and then therefore we just quit praying because that's too uncomfortable. See, the best way I can illustrate this for you, as I told you this last time we talked through this, is you got, if you had, homework check, who went and got George Mueller's journals for $2.99 in Amazon and Kindle? Y'all need to get saved. I'm gonna just, <laughs> just going to change this up. Ain't nobody in this room don't have $2.99. All right? Go and get the book. It's child reading. So it's not hard. It's not like you're going to read some D.A. Carson and get caught up in, in exegetical fallacies or anything like that. It's not difficult. It's easy reading. It's George Mueller's journals. And how this cat devoted his life to prayer. He would not rise to work until his soul was at rest in the Lord. This guy lived in the kingdom, y'all. And this is the stuff I have conversations with people about. This. Well, how can you practically live like this now? Do it. How? It means you've got to put this aside because you believe the kingdom is supernatural and He can override that. But see, we're too practical atheists. Well, God doesn't do that anymore. Who, who told you that? Right? We just don't think we can do what we're told to do. And Mueller took that to the nth degree. I, my heart is not satisfied today. Too many orphans need to be fed. And the only one that can feed them is Jesus because the cupboards are bare. So, staff, we're, we're going to pray till somebody shows up the front door with milk and bread. And guess what happened? 
Milk and bread showed up. God drives, you know, I didn't sell everything today, and the Lord told me to come by and give you the leftovers. It just happened to be enough to feed all the kids. How do you explain that? Yes, it is. It's the supernatural power of the kingdom, y'all. God giving manna in the desert isn't a myth for you to just kind of hopefully generate a little belief in you. It's a recollection of the historical fact that God can feed His people. Right? I know this is nonsense to our minds, but the reality is God truly answers prayer in accordance with His purpose that comes to Him on behalf of His people. So when the Spirit knows how to pray on our behalf and He teaches us how to pray in the course of the will of the Father, expect God to answer because that's just what He does. Piper calls prayer a walkie-talkie for wartime mentality. We have a general who has one end and we have the other. We speak directly to the general. When we're in his war, in his trenches, doing his things, we never fail to have his ear and whatever we ask for to achieve the mission, he generously gives. We're told to pray alertly. He says, keep alert. Pray alertly. Some translations translate that as pray watching or keep watch in prayer. Watching means to keep alert. It means to keep alert. Nehemiah practiced this while they were repairing the walls of Jerusalem. While having some of the men on the wall work with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Putting the wall together in one hand ready to kill the enemy. That's alert prayer. It is being aware of your surroundings. Being aware of the spiritual climate. Being aware of the circumstances. And at the same time, calling on the Lord who is present for those circumstances and for those needs. In other words, it's tuning in. Being alert. What's, what's happening in the atmosphere right now? What's my soul? What's my spirit discerning right now? Lord, Lord, do something about that. Do something about me. The problem may be me. It may be, I don't know. Do something, Lord. So praying alertly. Mark thirteen thirty three. Watch and pray is the secret victory over the world, over the flesh, and over the devil. Keeping alert is what will happen as we pray in the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit will never fail to communicate to us what we need to know. So as we alertly pray, we will be aware because we're keeping in step with Holy Spirit. And if we keep in step with Holy Spirit, He'll inform us when we need to go to prayer. Praying alertly is being at the ready. It doesn't have to be a formal activity requiring you or I to gear up. It can be in the car as we lie in bed, as we're in the chair now. Pray in real time. Be ready to get to prayer in a second. Don't get too comfortable with things and become a target. Expect prayer to be a spiritual struggle. Just going to be. The battle for your mind, the battle for the air in this room, the battle for the atmosphere of your home is a spiritual struggle. And do not expect prayer to come easy. Expect a thousand hindrances from your phone to the jet flying over your house to the checklist in your mind to keep you off the task of the kingdom. You ever notice when you go to prayer how it's so stinking 
hard? You ever notice how it's easier just to get up and go to work than it is to stop and be quiet and listen and pray? Why do you think that is? Then Paul tells us, pray with all perseverance. Keep on praying, keep on praying, keep on praying, keep on praying, keep on praying. Listen, in our minds right now, I feel it. It's happening in my mind, so I'm just going to say it now. You are already thinking, I can't live this way. There's too much to do. And I'm going to, let me combat that with this question. How can we not do this? Could it be that we really just don't believe? Gideon, you got too many men. Too many, Gideon. Pair it down to the ones who drink water like a dog. I will take victory over the enemies, not you. Maybe it could be God doesn't need me to do more. He desires me to do less and trust Him to make up for the slack. Spiritual discipline of the Sabbath is an issue of prayer because we think that God needs my productivity. Listen, the whole point of the Sabbath is the work is not done. It never will be. So therefore, stop when I tell you to and trust me. That's why God gave him the Sabbath year. Try, hey, there you go. Just don't work next year. Every seventh year, quit working, right? That's what the Lord asked them to do. Don't plant. And in that year, I will have given you enough prior year to get you through the year you don't plant. And the next year when you're planting and it doesn't come to fruition, I'll give you three years worth. Did he not say that? Well, that's just a myth, right? We don't, we don't believe that anymore, right? I, I want to live that way, and I don't have the guts to do it. And mightn't it be that because that's my mentality, maybe the mentality of the church in the West, that the Lord has bypassed us for the church in the East, where the kingdom is exploding with nothing, under persecution, they grow at rates we only dream about in freedom. We're praying, people. Keep on praying with all perseverance. The word perseverance simply means to stick to it and not quit. This is the way the early church prayed. This is the way George Mueller prayed. This is the way through great movements in church history the church has prayed. Perseverance in prayer does not mean we're trying to twist God's arm, but rather we are deeply concerned and burdened and we can't rest until we get God's answer. As Robert Lewis puts it, prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, it's getting God's will done on earth. Most of us, I, quit praying just before God's about to give the victory. Not... Everybody is so built so that they can spend the whole night in prayer. Certainly not me, because I like to sleep. But we can all persevere in prayer far more than we do. At least while I'm awake, do a little bit better job. The early church prayed without ceasing. Remember when Peter was in prison in Acts 12? They prayed and didn't stop until the angel released Peter from prison. Keep on praying until the Spirit stops you or the Father answers you. Paul says here, pray for all the saints. He says, making supplication for all the saints. This is beautiful. 
When the Lord taught us to pray, He said, pray like this, Our Father, not my Father. Meaning when we pray, there is innately, automatically a communal nature to prayer. Our Father, not Father, my Father, for me, me alone. Prayer is a community event. Even when you're alone, it is still a community event because He's not just your Father, He's my Father too. He's our Father. He's the Father of all those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we pray as part of a great family that is also talking to God. This is what makes, I think it's one of the things that just makes prayer powerful. We pray God think, pray God's things. We're not the only one praying those things. And so there are many in agreement over God's things. So when we pray God's things, there's this concert of the prayer of God's people coming up to Him. And the book of Revelation images that prayer ascending to Him like incense. So when we're all praying God's things. Our prayers are ascending to the Father and He hears them. So that together as we ask for God's things, they as a concert come to Him and He as a good Father gives those things. You know, James told us the reason we pray and we don't get is because we pray selfishly. We pray for our stuff. We bite at each other and we pray selfishly to spend on ourselves. So much of our prayer is built on an economic gaining of more, not in advance of the kingdom. And that's why prayer aborts in the church in the West. We teach our kids this fallacy and this folly. We teach them their dog is more important than the advance of the gospel among unreached people groups. And not that their dog is unimportant, not that God doesn't care about their dog, but why don't we start with Jesus cares about lost people in Nepal. Let's go to Jesus on behalf of those who don't know what you know today. And let's ask Jesus to maybe send some of us in time there. Right? Let's start there. All of us praying together. Pray for our workers in our UPG. Pray for us in this room. Parents. Those who aren't parents yet. Those who want to be parents. Moms, dads, husbands, deacons, pastors. Pray for each other. Pray for the foster home. Pray for the work in our unreached people group. Pray for us are together as a community. Now, what are we to be asking for in our praying? Well, the Bible's full of things to ask for, right? Genesis to Revelation. Go, you can happy plunge it if you want to. This is one that's just happy. Just pray against idolatry. That's good. You can, you can almost happy plunge and pick something to pray on. The manual's full of things to pray but in this passage in Ephesians, what is, what is, this, what is Paul asking for? To, to stand, right? So what's the end of that standing? Why am I to stand and not give ground? Well, he's going to answer the question here in verse 19. And also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Here's the end. Here's why we stand. Here's why we put on the armor. It's so that we may boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Which is our second point. We pray for bold proclamation of the mystery of the gospel. Now we've been clear on what the mystery of the gospel is. Ephesians is clear. Ephesians 1, 2, 3. Go read them. 
that this Jesus, this second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, has been exalted at the right hand of the Father, and all things are being reconciled underneath Him, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, all domains of society, everything is coming underneath His headship. The powerful, mysterious kingdom is at work, and everything is being brought under His headship, and it will come to completion at some point in time, which is the restoration of all things. And so we know what the mystery of the gospel is. And Paul says, I need boldness to proclaim this. Note that Paul didn't ask them to pray for his comfort or safety. But for the effectiveness of his witness and ministry. There's so much more I wanted to say here and I backed off because ours is already like at eight pages. In the West, we default to safety. In the Bible, they default to effectiveness. We're more concerned with surviving than we are advancing. Could that be one of the lies we've integrated into our thinking? Is that Jesus is more concerned with security than he is advancement of the gospel? Security is a billion dollar industry and it's a myth. Go read the life of Ahab. Here was Ahab's security. Hey, Jehoshaphat, we're going into battle. You wear your kingly robes. You read that passage and go, is Jehoshaphat like not all there? Ahab's like, you wear your kingly robes. I'm going to be disguised as a regular guy. And, and what you read in the narrative is that the other team had decided to go after only the king. So they go into battle and they all come after Jehoshaphat and Ahab's kind of riding on his own. And it's funny because I actually wrote in the margin of my Bible. I was like, this is funny. Because when they come after Jehoshaphat, the Bible says he turns and he yelled out. And I'm wondering, what did he yell out? Ah! Did he scream like a woman? What did he do? It's like all of a sudden, and he's thinking, Ahab, you moron. What does he scream? I'd love to know what he said. Did he just scream? What did he cry out? But they've come after him and he turns and goes the other way. And then it tells us that a guy on the other team drew his bow at random. And the arrow found Ahab. Just like the Lord said through Elijah would happen. Listen, <laughs> here's a reality for us. Safety is an illusion. And Paul wasn't asking for safety. He wasn't even asking for release from prison. He was asking that while he's there, would you ask that I would be bold with this mysterious gospel? Three quick observations. Paul wanted him to pray that bold words would be given to him from God. If Listen, we've done this a lot. That we talked about the armor. If this, then this. If Paul was praying for boldness, what do you think the temptation was? To say nothing. Say nothing. Just don't get in any more trouble, Paul. Just be quiet. If you tone it down, they'll let you out. After all, you're not expendable, Paul. You're important to the mission. So, as Lecrae says, tone it down. You might sell a lot of records, but there's people out there dying and none of them heard the message. Right? And so, Paul didn't want to tone it down. I'm in prison. Let me kill me. Pray that the temptation to be timid wouldn't come. But I'll stand and put on the armor and words will be given to my mouth to tell of this glorious news of the kingdom. 
Paul asked for prayer for boldness, which means if Paul was timid, who do we think we are, right? All of us are. So maybe we start, Lord, loose my tongue to speak boldly about the mystery of your kingdom. That's what Paul's asking for. Paul had to ask for that. I know I got to, right? Notice second observation. Paul wanted him to pray that he would proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul wanted clarity and comprehensiveness. This mystery of the gospel. This mystery which we talked about is that Jesus is king. All things have been reconciled underneath his headship by the powerful working of his kingdom. This is a spiritual message. It can only be heard with spiritual ears and empowered by the Holy Spirit in the mouths of beautifully feeded people. And Paul needed a clear articulation of this mystery of the gospel. I don't know if you've noticed this. If you do any kind of evangelism, if you know what I'm talking about, you get in the moment, you've got this thing down, you understand the gospel, and you get blubber-tongued. And it's like, you're not even sure if you're talking about Buddha, Muhammad, Jesus, and it's like you get foggy-minded. Anybody? It wears me out. And I'm thinking, I know this. What is wrong with me? It's because there's a war. And the enemy wants to take ground. He owns that other individual. They're in captivity. They're dead in their sin and their transgressions. And there's a spiritual war going on. And so therefore, Lord, help me to proclaim this mystery. It's, it's, been hit, it's hidden from their eyes. They don't get it. Help me to say it in a way that somehow by your supernatural power it will land. If, if, if that's what I have to pray for, then the temptation or the fight may be that it won't land or I can't say it. Right? So before we start talking about mechanics on what to do, let's start, Lord, loose my tongue. Help me to be bold. Help me to say it right. What Paul was asking for here. And the third observation, bold proclamation got Paul a jail sentence to preach to prisoners. The reality is that bold proclamation, and hear this clearly, not dumb and careless actions, are going to have implications in our context. There will be a Supreme Court decision in the not too distant future that's going to have implications on us. The freedom to speak, and listen, listen. I'm just going to stay with what I wrote here, so listen carefully. The, the freedom to speak about what the Bible hails as valuable will probably not diminish legally as much as socially. There's not going to be a law, more than likely, in our time, preventing us from speaking truthfully. However, what we are going to see, I believe, is a diminishing of the social acceptance of that message. The pressure to cave to social norms is increasing and we must recognize prison might be a cakewalk compared to the beating we may take in the court of public opinion and that could spill out into violence done to Christians. And I think we've already seen some of that. In the first couple of centuries of Christianity, what was not state-sponsored was socially sponsored for fear that this monotheistic, non-state-sponsored religion thought to be atheistic due to their monotheism was met with brutal persecution in the public. We could find ourselves here again. 
So we must be bold with the message of the Scriptures, and we must pray for this kind of supernatural boldness. We won't go to prison, but we will not be appreciated for standing on the values of God's kingdom. Third and finally, and then we'll wrap up with a conclusion. Bold proclamation. Listen, I want you to listen to Paul's language here. Let me just read the little headline. Bold proclamation as an ought. As an ought. O-U-G-H-T. Not as an unsavory option. Bold proclamation as an ought. Not as one unsavory option. Listen to what Paul says here. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly. And he didn't stop the sentence there. He says, comma, as I ought to speak. In other words, boldness is an ought. It's not an option. You hear that? Boldness is an ought. It's not an option. Amen. Unfortunately, when many of us think about boldness, we think about that guy or gal who's offending people with their methodology, not the content. The content does not have a chance to offend because it's not landing due to the person being a jerk. And not concerned about other people. The Bible never teaches that. Winsomeness in evangelism is essential. Boldness is the content of the gospel presented, not the methodology of actually getting in front of people. Let me say that again. Boldness is the content of the mystery of the gospel presented, not the methodology of actually getting in front of people. Paul's not referencing how one gets in front of people. We're not talking about relationships, tracks, service ministry, whatever. That's not what he's referencing. Paul is referencing the way we speak of the gospel when we are in front of people. When God does give us access, he's talking about what we say. The content of what comes out of my mouth. That's what he's calling bold. The Bible, Paul particularly here, assumes we're going to get in front of people. That's an assumption. It's command. We're to go make disciples of all nations, right? Starting from Jerusalem. So from wherever we are, we're to go make disciples of all nations. So the Bible assumes, Paul's assuming we're going to get in front of people. The boldness is not the methodology of getting in front of people. The boldness is the content of the words that come out of my mouth. Note that boldness does not mean dominating a conversation. It doesn't mean being mean. It doesn't mean being loud. It doesn't mean invading people's personal space. It does mean that we speak about the content of the gospel without reservation or shame. In other words, we don't mince words hoping that we can win people with a diluted message that really has no explanation of how the meta-narrative of the truth answers ultimate questions. Meaning, if we're going to be bold, we're going to have to let the content of the gospel out. Listen, man, here's the deal. You don't keep the lion in the cage. You let the lion out of the cage. Don't cage the gospel. Speak of it boldly. It is powerful. Romans 1.16 For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Don't cage it. Unleash it. But in order to unleash it, you've got to speak it. In other words, we don't mince words and dilute the message hoping they'll like me. And then we justify what well, trying to build a relationship by cutting God off at the legs. 
then who are you worshiping, them or Jesus? Example, try this. Answer the question, who are you? Who are you? And here's where the boldness comes. You are a broken image bearer that was broken from conception and cut off from the life of God and in need of transformation and rescue from darkness. Rather bold. And notice I didn't scream it. It's just true. Try this. Answer the question, why am I different? Why am I any different? Because you might get asked that question. Why are you different, right? Well, I'm different because God, being rich in mercy when I was dead toward Him, made me alive through the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and His transforming and rescuing power alone. No work of my own. What about this question? What's your purpose? What's my purpose? You were made to delight in and make much of Jesus Christ and fulfilling your created purpose for His glory and your joy. By the way, that's ex- you, can, you can exposit that. You, you, you can dive deep on this stuff I'm giving you. right? And it's all on the blog. You don't have to write it down. It's all there. For His glory and your joy in the completion of taking His message to all nations. You just answered a question by giving them a scope for their life that includes the world. What am I made for, man? Am I made to just work at McDonald's? No. Start at McDonald's, but let your scope be the world. You're made to make much of Jesus by fulfilling your creative purpose here and there. What could God do with you in Antarctica? Ooh, adventure. Yeah, right? You're created, and your creative purpose is, is a deeper then than you simply making a living. Sell that. That's bold. Because everything is, get a job, make a living. Right? You need to get a job, but maybe making a living is secondary. Maybe making Jesus big somewhere else is better. And getting paid to do it. Right? That's bold. That flies in the face of Western economics, doesn't it? Don't go to college to make a lot of money. Go to college to be equipped to spread the values of God's kingdom. You can't sell that in school. Even Christian parents don't want to hear that. My kid's supposed to make six figures. Maybe not. Maybe their job's to be poor among the poorest in Kenya. Maybe their education is to learn how to make a difference in the slums in Kenya. Answer this question. How does one get into the kingdom of God? How do I get saved? Repentance from the rebellion you were sold into from conception and faith in Jesus to make that happen. But that can only happen through the new birth work of the Holy Spirit regenerating you to life and causing you to see that you're in need of repentance and faith. Then you start following Jesus by getting involved in a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church to begin growing in discipleship and start reading your Bible as part of that growth. And then give them one. Well, that's pretty bold, right? Try this one. Tell the story of the meta-narrative in four parts from Genesis to Revelation. And we talked yesterday at a little retreat about some upcoming things. Probably for the next three or four years, stuff we're going to be teaching on and preaching on. And one of them is evangelism and giving you some tools. I'm going to give you a little glimpse right here. Tell the story of the meta-narrative in four parts. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Can you all remember those four things? I'm going to get very interactive here. I'm sorry. Say after me. Say it only after I say it, though, because it would be weird if you're saying it while I'm saying it. Then it will fail totally, right? So... Creation, Creation. fall, Fall. redemption, Redemption. restoration. Restoration. Those are the four parts of the meta-narrative. Those four parts answer the totality of all gospel questions. Creation, who am I, who are you, who is God? God is, go to Genesis, right? 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And he made man in his image. I'm an image bearer. You're an image bearer. Remember, we're creating the image of an intelligent, speaking, communicating God who made us uniquely as the pinnacle of his created order. That's pretty good stuff. That's good news, right? You're important. I'm important. Fall. Uh Uh-oh, bad news. By the way, this is a good movie line. All movie lines follow the meta-narrative. Just pay attention. Go watch a movie tonight. Notice the following of the meta-narrative. It's just the way. It's the only thing that makes a good story. If the story didn't have... A conflict, it's a crappy story, right? We're looking, and then we want the resolution to the conflict, right? And we want to see it, things work out good, right? That's the story of the gospel, the fall, right? Fall. But here's the bad news. Your image bearer, but because of sin and rebellion, you're broken, and you're dead toward God, and you're under the condemnation of God. But redemption, God being rich in mercy, started in Genesis 3 by covering their shame. He took the life of creatures he created in order to cover their shame. And in the fullness of time, he promised him that he would send one to break the curse and make it right. And he would crush the enemy, and the enemy would wound him, but on the third day he would rise. He would rescue from hell all those who put their trust in him. And then he promised to come again and restore all things back to the state it was before it fell in a new heaven and a new earth. Dude, drop that on people. That took me a minute and a half. Right? Take those four things and expound upon them. Boldness. Tell that story. Invite people to church. I know some of you guys, we joke about that because you're like, I'm afraid to bring them because of the stuff you're going to say. <laughs> I know that. That's okay. Um, maybe not. I don't know. Bring them. The Holy Spirit can do far more than what comes out of these broken lips. Boldness. I'm running out of time, but I put a link to a Washington Post article that got put up today. And it's funny. I didn't know the Washington Post put stuff like this up. But the Washington Post talked about boldness today. They didn't call it bold, but just go click on the link and read the article. They gave three marks to the Southern Baptist Convention regaining strength in the midst of decline of evangelicalism in the West. Who knew? Go read it. I put the link there. Here's what they said. Get serious again about the evangelical distinctive of sharing one's faith. This is Washington Post. Get serious about the evangelical distinctive of sharing one's faith. This is Washington Post's counsel to the church on stopping the decline of evangelicalism in the West. God spoke through a donkey to Balaam. Get serious about the evangelical distinctive of sharing one's faith. Two, doctrinal rigor has to remain at the center of our churches. Amen. Doctrinally rigorous. We've got to maintain the distinctives, what is uniquely Christian and what is not, and die on those hills. And then third, they said, and this was debatable, but I'm going to throw it on you. I'm going to give you my commentary very quickly. Make sure politics, particularly Republican Party politics, remain secondary. And I put in parenthesis a non-factor. We don't have a party. We have a king. His name is Jesus. Kill that one. Irrelevant. But we shouldn't be involved. Don't hear me say Christians shouldn't be involved. Just don't think that the involvement means you're on one side or the other. Be a member of the kingdom first. I'm running out of time. Alan Hirsch chronicles the situation for the church between 8100 and 8310 in which the estimated population of the church went from 25,000 
in 8100 to 20 million by 8310. And he asked a question in this book called The Forgotten Ways. And I encourage you, I, I footnoted it so you could go find it. He asked a question, how did they get there without any systems? We, we think systems, we think how-to. The church didn't think how-to. How-to was not in their vocabulary. Because what you discover is they were illegal. It was, an illegal, it was an illegal religion during this period. They didn't have buildings as we know church buildings today. They didn't have the scriptures as we know them. The canon was still being formed. They didn't have an institution or professional form of leadership associated with the church. They just had pastors, elders, overseers being appointed in all these places where the church was springing up. And they didn't have seeker-sensitive services. They didn't have youth groups. They didn't have bands. They didn't have seminaries. They didn't have volumes of commentaries. How in the world did the church grow? As a matter of fact, it was actually hard to join the church. Remember we did Perpetua on All Saints Day a few years ago? As a matter of fact, in order to join a church, the convert had to go through a rigorous, sometimes two-year initiation period to prove that their paganism had been rooted out of them, that their vocabulary had even shifted before they would be baptized and administer the Lord's Supper for the first time. And they went from <laughs> 25,000 to 20 million. We would see all those things as barriers. They saw them as opportunities. How'd they do this? Now, Hershey's answer is more nuanced and dangerous for those who like control. So go read the book. But the nutshell answer is the supernatural power of God's kingdom at work in His church as they went about boldly proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and obeying the Scriptures. We don't want to hear that because that's not five things to grow a large church. That's go obey what's written. Supernaturally. Now there's more to the book. It's like that thick. But he plays all these things out in church. Listen guys, this isn't a complicated thing. Boldly proclaim the gospel. Here's my application. I told you I'd give you some things to do. Number one, try this. Try this for boldness. Ready? About to blow your mind. Ready? Number one, get quiet for an extended period of time daily. Get quiet for an extended period of time daily. Say, I can't do that. Well, then you can't follow Jesus. I'm sorry. The greatest need I have today is to sit and hear the Lord. That's the only thing that will keep my soul from dying. It's His constant speaking of life to me. Get quiet for an extended period of time daily. Two, read your Bible. I linked Bible reading plans. And if you follow that link, there's like nine. Pick your favorite. You can get it sent to your iCal, your Google, your Outlook, your phone. You pick your option. All right? Read your Bible. Third, and this one's, this one's going to freak us out. Listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You're going to only know the voice of the Spirit through learning to get quiet and reflecting on the Scriptures and a desire to be led by the Holy Spirit and the discipline to discern your thinking from the voice of the Spirit. The Bible, listen to this, the Bible assumes we know this. It doesn't tell us how to do it. It assumes we know this. There's no systematic teaching on this. It's learning to pay attention to holy moments and distinguish them from events of our own creation. Will we mess up frequently doing this? Yes. Will we learn to listen better? Yes. Will the Lord speak more clearly sometimes than others? Yes. Will He be silent sometimes? Yes. Is it messy? Yes. 
But the scriptures teach us to do this and do it in fellowship and test everything to see if it's from the Lord. That's why you can't do this isolated. That's why you do radical life groups. Guys, I was praying the other day and I heard the Lord say this to me. and It's in line with the word. What do you say? And that's when the Lord may give a word to somebody else. And that's when we test stuff, man. That's life. That's radical life, right? So listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And fourth, obey. This was crazy. You ready? This is going to blow your mind. Obey what the Word and Spirit say. That's pretty bold stuff. That's the kind of stuff that took the church from 25000 to $20 million when it was illegal. So let's end today by being bold in the content and execution of our worship. Psalm 141 says, Praise the Lord, for it's good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and the song of praise is fitting. It is a great and frankly unspoken end that I'd love for our worship to be driven not by style or show. Although I think Adam does a phenomenal job of leading and I think these guys do a phenomenal job at working hard and executing songs and an order for us to respond to. But their job is not to generate a buzz to get you hyped into singing to the Lord. Worship is what happens when God's people are enamored with the Lord and that worship transcends a style or location. Worship is good and pleasant and fitting. And the worship of the Lord that transcends the natural is bold. Let's go there. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to do a work that we can't do. Holy Spirit, that you would speak words that we can't speak. That you would cause there to be clear instruction from your mouth. Lord, I ask you to, right now in this moment, rule your people well. Speak clearly, articulately. Holy Spirit, scream past any interference going on in the mind and the soul. Make your voice clear. And give to us boldness. Give to us boldness to live boldly in our private community and public time. That the mystery of the gospel will go forward. Your kingdom would advance, your will would be done, and your name would be made great, we pray.